0: My mother was always on the edge of being deported back, praying for a good caseworker who would see that these people are really in need. But when it comes to home office, they don't really see you as people as well. They just see you as cases.
1: Welcome to I Am An Immigrant, the podcast about people who have come to the UK from somewhere else. I'm your host, Christine Bacon. And yes, dear listener, I am an immigrant. In this episode, I talk with Meltem Avsil. Meltem is 28 years old. She is a social entrepreneur and an award-winning campaigner, and she lives in Cambridge with her partner and one-year-old son. We spoke to each other sitting in our homes over an internet connection, so you may hear a little background noise, which is either the baby or my neighbour drilling into his walls. Originally from the Kurdish part of Turkey, Meltem and her mother fled their home to seek asylum in Europe when Meltem was very young. They ended up in the UK and waited six years for a decision on their case, which was turned down, after which they were taken to the notorious Yarlswood Immigration Detention Centre in Bedford. After many years of pressure from campaigners, the UK changed its policy of detaining children in these centres, but back then, in 2007, 13-year-old Meltem and her mother were locked up for three months. We didn't talk much about what happened during those three months because Meltem has talked about it extensively and I've put a link to her TEDx talk in the show notes. We talked about what it's like being a child, trying to find a place in the world, and finding courage when it seems all is lost. I hope you enjoy this episode. My name is Meltem
0: and I am an immigrant.
1: Great. Welcome to the show, Meltem. Do you identify with that term, immigrant?
0: Immigrant, not so much, but refugee, yes. Um, because for me, immigrants are even people from Europe, you know, who can easily enter the country. They don't have to go through what people, uh, for example, from the Middle East uh, have to go through to taste a bit of freedom.
1: So do you still feel as, as attached to your refugee identity as you did back then? Now it's how many years later? 15 uh, years later? Something yeah,
0: like something <laughs> like that. Well, I used to be ashamed of having that identity, especially as a very young person, a child, basically, um, who's always faced, you know, oh, you can't have this because you're a refugee, you can't go there because you're a refugee. So at some point in my teenage years, I felt ashamed to be confined into one word, basically, which people didn't look at in the best light. How did
1: that manifest itself? Did you try and hide your refugee status? Uh, you can never actually
0: hide if you're a refugee or not because uh, there are certain things you have to go by legally as well and uh, in the society itself. But me feeling ashamed was more of a very like sinking feeling inside of me. It wasn't something I tried to hide or anything, but whenever I was told no, because of our status, I felt maybe, I don't know, not ashamed and sad, ashamed that I had to be confined with the word refugee, which meant I wasn't important as a human first. Right now, years later, of course I am proud of my roots, but I always want people to see The humans before the labels that come with them, I am comfortable with the word. But at the same time, it's something that dehumanizes a person's experience, I think. And so can you just talk a little bit about Kurdish culture? It's very loud, uh, hospitable. They're quite accepting of others. They love their music. They love getting together and spending time. It's a very rich culture, I would say. But at the same time, it's very confined because of the roles in the society. You know, the young always has to respect the old. And there are many things, for example, girls can't do because of the culture and the society. So, yes, it has its positives and negatives as any other culture. So your parents are both Kurdish? Yes, both Kurdish from Turkey. And do
1: you know how they met? Um <laughs>
0: Well, this is a part of the culture. So back in the days, if a girl liked a guy, they'd run away. Okay. And that's what my mom and dad did. They kind of ran away together, of course, after knowing each other for a very short time. So that's how they met. I don't really have a very romantic story about them. (laughs) So it was a kind of a passionate thing. If you ask my mother, it's a stupid thing. (laughs) It wasn't passionate or anything. You see, the thing with my my Kurdish society is that they're quite uneducated. They do not know what they don't know, basically. And because of that, they've made, like my mother has made a, had made a bad decision of running away with a person she had met for a day. I mean, you can tell how romantic it is or <laughs> passionate it was. So it wasn't the best decision she made. Because in my culture, it's not correct for a girl and a guy to, for example, go and eat an ice cream or hold hands and walk around and, you know, even have a male friend without the society seeing it as something happening. Oh, I saw your daughter with a guy. And then it's like that's shame. That's shame to our honor. I think because they didn't have that freedom, it kind of pulled them more to do such things just because they couldn't. So they knew each other for a day
1: <laughs> and then they decided they were going to run, run away where? Run away to, to get married? Yeah, to get married.
0: Well, once a woman runs away, a girl runs away, she runs away for that purpose only. They don't run away to go and take a holiday in a sunny part of Turkey, no, but they run away for that reason, to get married. And my mum was 16 at the time, and my father was 13 years older than her. And he had already divorced from his first marriage. When I say ran away, it's a term used, gone for good, it means. It's not like running away to a destination, or it's like gone for good, never to come back again. That's quite extreme. Yes, because... Once a girl runs away with a guy, she usually gets married to that guy and that guy is her husband, so she spends her time, her lifetime with that person. Does your mum talk about this time as being a happy time for her? Oh, no, no, not at all because my, my father wasn't very responsible. He said and did things that really broke her and she was very young. It wasn't the best time for her at all. Knowing that she was 16 had me when she was 17. She was still growing up, but she had made a terrible decision. And now she was growing up with a baby and an irresponsible man. So how
1: did your parents' relationship play
0: out then? How did that evolve? They always used to argue. Because my dad, as I said, he was very irresponsible with his drinking and gambling. And my mother was the one trying to put things together and, you know, maybe put some money to aside. I never saw them, like, loving each other or anything like that. After being detained, me and my mother, when we were detained, we moved to Newcastle, where we got our indefinite leave to remain, which meant we can stay in the UK now. Then my father joined us because they had separated, my mother and my father. He joined us, but then a month later, he passed away because he had cancer the whole time. It kind of ended abruptly. So how was your relationship with your dad while he was alive? I barely saw my dad. I only have a few memories of him. The ones I chose to keep, I think. Just a couple of happy memories that I have with him. But I don't have... Many memories of my father because I'm telling you he was always out, you know, drinking, gambling, whatever you can imagine. From that, <laughs> it was always it was always me and my mum. Always.
1: So your father was targeted in some way in Turkey and and taken by the authorities, and and tortured. Then he escaped the country and left to go to Europe. And after that, your mother was targeted then decided she had to leave the country with you because it was too dangerous to stay. Yeah. And the first place you went to was Germany. Yes. Was there a reason why your mum decided to go to Germany first and not the UK, or was it just the way it worked out?
0: It was the way it worked out because at the time the smugglers would give you a destination and a price. And remember, we came from poverty, so we would go where we could afford and at the time, we could afford going to Germany because England was more expensive because it was further. We went to Germany. We applied for asylum. After a year and a half, it was rejected. So then we made our way to England. Most of our family was here. And we were sent to Bradford. NAS. I think that's what they're called. NAS would provide a home and uh, £30 a week. And you just couldn't work. So you were waiting, basically. And in Bradford, we actually faced racism by some people. The house next to ours was an empty house and they put that house on fire. And we saw two men in a car just parked, watching. Because the thing is, Pakistan is, uh, the majority of people living there is Muslim. And I think they saw that we were from the Middle East, but my mother wasn't wearing a hijab so she wasn't representing Islam. I think that was the reason. I do remember a Turkish interpreter, a lovely female, helping us at the time because we didn't know any English, nothing at all, you know, and we had nobody to help us in Bradford. She took us to the police station and we said what we saw and what not and the because to us it was very suspicious that suddenly the house next door to us was on fire because it was an abandoned house so someone must have set fire there was nothing that could have gone wrong in that house so it was done on purpose which meant it was racism because we were completely new and then from there we were sent to Doncaster We lived there for six years straight and it was, for me, it was one of my happy places because I made friends, I had started school and, you know, it was the first place I stayed at for so long because in Germany I only stayed for a year and a half. The memories of Turkey, I hardly remember anything from there because I was so young. Um, When we came to England, Bradford, you know, that unfortunate event happened. And then Doncaster, I stayed for six years. So it meant something to me.
1: Hi all, it's me quickly popping in to say, if you think we need to transform how our society perceives immigrants so that we can move on from the tired old stereotypes, please recommend this podcast to some of the people in your life. Fan of the podcast, and my ten-year-old daughter Neve is here to tell you more. You can share some of our posts, our social details are in the show notes, and if you want to, you can leave a nice review on iTunes. Also, we've had several people get in touch with great suggestions for future guests. We'd love to hear yours. Okay, back to the
0: conversation. Six months after we came to England and applied for asylum the Home Office found out that we had fingerprints in Germany, which meant they would eventually deport us back to Germany. So my mother was always on the edge of being deported back, praying for a good caseworker at the Home Office who would see that these people are really in need. But when it comes to Home Office, they don't really see you as people as well. They don't. They just see you as cases. Did you manage to connect with your family here while you were in Doncaster? See, that's the thing. A lot of my society in England, they have always stuck together. Most of them live in London, but we were always separate from them. We weren't ever like all together. And as for my mother's, you know, sister, she would come to visit and all and we would go and visit. But not so often. We were more in our own little world with our Turkish neighbours around us in Doncaster. And why do you think that was? Why do you think you didn't spend that much time with them? The thing is, there's something that's really horrible that happens. And it's horrible in the sense that it's something that shouldn't happen, which is from the people I know in my society, when refugees have their British passport or their indefinite leave to remain. The asylum seekers that do not have a status yet is in a way a burden to them or not on their level. There is that thing about them being less than you. Many of these people, my family, all of them actually, they already had their British passports, their kids were born in the UK, most of them anyway. So for them, we were less than. And my father being a responsible constantly... It kind of broke many people's trust within the society. And yeah, people didn't really look at us in a very friendly way, let's say.
1: So you um, you were in Doncaster and as you say, it was your happy place in a way. And you made some good memories, made some friends, yeah. had a community around you until this one day when you were 13 that you were taken to immigration detention with your mum. And prior to that, you had been told
0: that your claim had been refused on the day we were told that at 6am when they came to get us because they don't want anyone absconding they don't want anyone running away so they come at very very early hours to catch you at home
1: so you weren't even informed until they came to the door that you had been refused after waiting six years for a response from the home office yeah
0: but they kind of expect you to know that Because all those six years, you don't just sit down doing nothing. Your solicitor is always in contact with the home office. So you know, they know, but it's the way they do it that's bothersome. Like coming to someone's house, even if it's not owned by them or rented by them, at 6am, 5am in the morning, eight huge immigration officers, all acting like there's been a crime in that scene. To me, that was very shocking. It traumatized me because I was 13 years old. It was 27th of August. I was in a bra. My best friend at the time was around. She was sleeping at mine. And as soon as I opened my eyes, that the knock was so loud that I'll never forget that knock ever in my life. One immigration officer, you know, one in the living room, Mm -hmm. one at the back, one upstairs, come on, hurry up, come on. You know, we don't have all day, you know, treating you like dirt, as if you've done something. And it's the way they do it. That's really, really bad for people who've already come from trauma, who've already come from things that were unpleasing to them.
1: I mean, your story—the way you recount it—and I encourage everyone listening to to have a look at Meltem's TEDx talk. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes, in which you go into a lot of detail about what happened after that. Really, really worth watching and listening to because it's so relentlessly shocking. I've I've been doing work in this area for many, many years, and I was really, really shocked at the things that you were revealing about what what it's like in in one of those institutions. And, you know, the behavior of the guards. And as you say, they really do not care. They really don't see you as a human being. There was one interview where you, you mentioned there was one guard. There was one guard in particular that was, that was actually nice.
0: His name was Brian, and he used to sit at the office. That was his job. And I used to go to the office at night whenever he was on shift just to have a conversation with him. And that was the only guard that, you know, I would ask him, so what did you do before this job? And he told me he was a butcher. And I would ask him, you know, what's a butcher? Because at the time, I didn't know what's a butcher, it's this, that, or how does it happen? So it was like a very lighthearted conversation. And he would always show me, you know, he would say to me, like, oh, you were you were on the newspaper again this week, you did well. And on my birthday, I received a lot of birthday cards from around the world because I was campaigning then. So people were getting to know about who I was, where I was, what was happening to me and my mother. And I opened one of the cards and it just wrote, Happy birthday, Meltem. Wish you all the best, blah, blah, blah. B. And I just knew it was Brian. It was from Brian. It had to be. And I took the card and he kind of gave me a wink because he knew he couldn't do that. I was just very happy that he was there because it was something good in something I saw as very bad. So it kind of shifted my way of thinking that, okay, they're not all very bad. And as a child, I think that was very important because it was a ray of hope, basically, for me.
1: Hi, everyone. Before we continue, for context, I'm just going to include a short extract from Melton's talk about what was happening at Yarlswood while she was there.
0: Meanwhile, mom is constantly applying for bail and is rejected. But the fifth time, the judge says to her, you cannot prove that Meltem doesn't like being in here. I cannot prove that I don't like being in prison as a 13-year-old. So I have to prove. Can I speak to the judge? No. Will he or she listen to me? No. So I go into the office and I ask for a razor. I go to my room, I lock my door, and I sit on the floor. Now, do I want to die? Of course not, but I have to prove. At one point, they
1: did try and um, deport you, and you were on a plane, you were handcuffed with your mother, the guards had been very violent towards you both, lots of intimidation, threatening that if you don't shut up, we'll do this, that, and the other, we'll tie you up, etc., etc.
0: There was a guard on one side, a female and a male on the other side of me, and they had basically, they were holding my legs and my arms down, and they didn't want me to move at all. The plane doors closed, and the plane started taxiing, and I just thought about everything that I did as a 13-year-old, or that I had to do as a 13-year-old, and it felt like nothing worked at all. So... Looking out of the window, I said to myself, do I really want to go? And my answer was no. And, you know, I would say it was a very divine moment for me because I asked God for a last bit of strength because prior to that, the journey was very draining mentally and physically. So I felt like I'm giving up. This is it. But then in that split second, looking out the window... I decided that I didn't want to go. I said, no, like, I don't want to go. Just give me some strength and I'll do the rest. And so I stood up and they were kicking me, punching me for me to sit back down. And I just wouldn't. And I started talking and screaming and telling people, you know, what these people were doing. And some people were recording, others were saying, take them off, take them off the plane. Some other people didn't even care that that was happening. Right in front of them. So I was very lucky that I found it in me to stand up and never to sit back down again. Do you remember what you said? I explained the situation. I said um, that I was 13 years old, that we had been detained for three months just because we're refugees. And I don't really remember what I said, but it was around those lines of explaining myself why I am just like any other person on that plane. But my documents are different.
1: And then at some point, the pilot said that you should be removed from the plane.
0: Yes, but the pilot came out. He, uh, he shouted at my mother. He said, shut up, because it must have been very stressful for him as well. Oh, come on. And he's the pilot of a plane. Then he looked at me and he just, he just stared at me for like five seconds straight. He didn't say anything at all, nothing. And he could have said, shut up to me. And that was it from me. I wasn't going to, I couldn't have done anything else. But he didn't. He said, bring the stairs, offload these passengers. And it felt like, you know, even this pilot was helping in that moment. So it wasn't just me. You know, something good was on my side that
1: day. You've described in other interviews how, you, you know, you've had different miracles that sort of helped change the course of, of your fate. But in the end, it was really you.
0: It was you that changed your fate wasn't it? It was. But I would say, you know, there was that divine intervention. There had to be, you know, I did my part as a human. I spoke out, I tried my best, and there was nothing to do. And then people listened and the pilot saw something. I don't know what he was thinking in that moment, looking at a 13 year old girl, eyes really red from all the crying and mouth very dry because I hadn't drank water in hours. So, you know, I would say there was some divine intervention. There had to be.
1: And so when you were taken off the plane, what was that feeling like? (laughs) I will
0: never forget that feeling. Literally, I was in the arm of the female guard. But in that moment, it felt like I was being escorted down very elegantly, as an elegant woman, (laughs) basically, because I was so happy that we were taking those steps back down. For me, it was a win situation. So I was very happy about it. I didn't feel like they had power over me. I felt like I had power over them. So there was this very cheeky grin on my face. And that uh, manager Paul, I knew that it really bothered him that this happened. So I was very happy about that because the whole way he blackmailed me of all the things he would do if I shouted on that plane. Actually, I could thank him right now because he gave me the idea to do that. Because at one moment, I said to myself, if this guy keeps on telling me, don't shout, don't shout, then if I shout, something's going to happen. So after that, you were taken back to the detention center, then to
1: a hospital, because I believe there was a a psychologist there who insisted that you go to the
0: hospital. They beat my mum up on that day. They took out my mum, and just because she resisted a bit. They pressed down on her stomach and hit her face with the handcuff and it slit underneath her eye. We had bruises everywhere from all the kicking and punching. And, yeah, the psychologist, she said these people have to go to the hospital. So we were taken to Bedford Hospital. And, yeah, from there more miracles happened.
1: It was Sir Ainsley Green, wasn't it, who came to visit you? Yes, made an intervention
0: yes he said to me like a few years back when we spoke he said that uh, on that day he had appointments meetings to attend to and once he saw I think he read the newspaper and at the time he was the children's commissioner of England and the newspaper said 13 year old girl attempts suicide or something like that because the judge had told my mum that she couldn't prove that I didn't like to be in Yarlswood. So I had to do that. And Sir Alainsley Green came and he he told me that he cancelled all of his meetings on that day as soon as he heard what was going on. He came, the immigration officer said, no, you can't talk to her. We'll have to come into the room with you. And Sir Alainsley Green looked at him and he said, you don't make the rules, I do. You're not coming in. And then he took me into the room. We spoke. I asked him not to forget about me once he left the room. I was exhausted because I knew there was a private jet hired for me and my mother to be deported back. And I knew that the guards were talking about injecting us if we made, you know, a ruckus again. So I knew that was it. If it's a private jet, if there's no one to listen, if we're injected, how could I stop anything from this point onwards? And miraculously, the next day we were released from Yarlswood as if nothing happened.
1: So I guess you you got on with life and went back to school and, and all of that.
0: How did the next 10 years play out? So I got on with life. I went back to school and then I was traumatized by my father's death. It played out well, but I had my freedom, but I was drained um, I don't know if there's any teenagers right now feeling drained right now because of something going on in their lives, but uh, at that point i was was really drained. But now I can say that uh, I'm better because after you leave such a a story, you're traumatized, whether you want it or not. And I started going to school and whatnot, and at the same time, I was sad. I was really sad. There was always this sadness inside of me that I couldn't explain why it was there. Then I did some campaigning. I won two awards, one Liberty Human Rights Award in 2014 and the Cosmopolitan Ultimate Campaigner of the Year in 2015. We had an online petition with Women for Refugee Women. And uh, yeah, I did some things to bring awareness to detention centers in the UK. And then I had my quiet time because I was sounding, I whenever I listened to myself in interviews, I sounded very robotic. You know, it was like I was on repeat. There were no feelings that I was feeling because of that. Like I was trying to hide how... Bad. I felt that all of these happened because I I thought that I could present it. I guess you're told, aren't you? When
1: when you speak to the media, you must be concise. Yes, you must yes, be yes. use sound bites and that kind of thing. So, what was the quiet time? What did what did that consist of? I
0: um, I moved back to Cambridge in 2017. I was working. I was finding myself because the thing is, I. I always knew that I didn't have the time for myself, even as a teenager. Instead of decorating my room at the age of 13, I was dealing with law and, you know, the government and stuff like that. So I was finding myself and, you know, reconnecting with the people from Cambridge, my college friends. Yeah, just calming down a little. No matter how good the day was, no matter how comfortable I was, I was still a little bit sad inside of me because I knew that I was deeply traumatized by everything that happened and I never received help for it. You know, I never went to a professional. I never spoke it out. And all I did was tell my story on repeat. If I could take back that time, I would tell my story again and again and again. But this time with the emotions that I try to hide so much, and you've got a partner now and, and a young baby. Yes, we met in Cambridge. It happened really fast. We liked each other. We stayed with each other.
1: Yeah, one of the, one of those relationships that just made sense from the beginning.
0: Yes, yeah, a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: when you look towards the future now, Melton, what do you see? I see my son. I see him living a very a very meaningful relaxed life with no interruptions by the government i see myself always helping people because that's where my heart is i like to help because in my darkest moments i've been helped a lot so you are a british citizen now yes yeah i am finally do you feel secure here uh yes yeah it feels like home now cambridge is home it is home (laughs) We have the status. No one can raid our house at 6 a.m. in the morning and drug us to a detention centre, so it's, it's good.
1: When we're allowed to go out again and be with each other again after this pandemic is, is over, what is a good night out for you?
0: I have my really good friends in a bar, not clubbing anymore, too old for that. <laughs> Those days are ago. Yeah. Just, yeah, having a few drinks and a few laughs.
1: Okay, well, Melton, thank you so much for your time. I I really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. And it was lovely getting to know you and getting to know more about your story beyond that short time in your life that you've spoken about so often. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much. Thank you, Christine. Um, It was a pleasure to be uh, on this show and uh, on this podcast, and I I enjoyed it a lot, and I got to speak about some things I never spoke of, so that was new for me. Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks so much to Meltem. That image of her at 13 resisting her deportation from the UK and managing, despite the overwhelming odds, to stand her ground and essentially save her life and her mother's will stay with me for a really long time. As I mentioned in the intro, do watch Meltem's TEDx talk about that time in her life. Also, Meltem has asked if I could share a petition with you, which you can find in the show notes. Later this year, the UK government is planning to open a new immigration detention centre in Durham exclusively for women, and you can add your voice to the growing opposition to that. You've been listening to I Am an Immigrant, produced by me, Christine Bacon, and edited by Helen Clapp. Support for this podcast comes from the Paul Hamlin Foundation, and it is an Ice and Fire Theatre production. We'll be in your feed every week. With a new conversation, subscribe to our social channels for updates. Thanks for listening and catch you later.